I was going to begin with a joke about the end being near because Pastor Charlie had actually taken a day off, but I decided it wasn't, it wasn't theologically defensible to make that joke. So let me just say I am Pastor Will Groban, as Jim said, and I'll be here today for the Prophecy Update, and we're going to have a sermon, a prophetic sermon, from the book of Haggai, so, or Haggai if you speak English. It's up to you. So I hope you'll be here for us or with us for both. We'll begin with the Prophecy Update. The end of all things is near, it says in 1 Peter 4, 7. And people have been looking for signs of the end to come ever since Peter wrote that. Today, we get excited when we see God at work in Israel. We get excitable when we see previously theologically sound denominations now teaching concepts more Unitarian than Christian. Scholars, pastors, people in the church, we all tend to react with thoughts about Jesus coming back when we see something that really startles our senses, especially if there's a sense of it in Scripture. Pastor Charlie and I have agreed, however, that we have to be very careful about how we interpret events and how we interpret the Bible, our sense of hermeneutics. What we do not want to do is try to predict when Jesus will come to rapture us. We do not want to use the news to interpret the Bible. What we do want to do is look at what the Bible prophetically says about our time period, these last days. In other words, we want to use the Bible to interpret the news. You guys probably already know this, but I had to think all this through because it's the first prophecy update I've ever done. So bear with me. Does that distinction make sense to everybody in the room? All right. I talked about this. I was supposed to be here in the spring, and Charlie's plans got changed, so he and I talked about all that way back then, and I'm just trying to make sense of it now. So let me try an example, an illustration from this crazy year. Now, I know some of you are not buying into this whole COVID-19 thing or you think it's been handled very poorly, but assume that what I'm going to say is true just for the sake of the illustration, okay? COVID-19 has accounted for almost a million deaths worldwide, over 200,000 in the U.S. alone. It's altered the lifestyle of millions of us with social distancing, mask wearing, cancellation of activities, like for my daughter, everything was canceled all summer, lockdowns of care facilities. Our responses to slow the spread of this virus have caused great economic impact, costing our economy billions of dollars and putting millions of people at least temporarily out of work. For global reach, economic impact, social impact, it's unprecedented probably in our lifetimes. So tell me how biblically, biblically now, I can know this is not a sign that the rapture is near. Because the Bible doesn't say anything about that prior to the rapture. Yeah, it doesn't. In fact, it says don't look for signs prior to the rapture. This is something Jesus said, Matthew 24. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken, one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. So we believe in a doctrine called imminence, that is that Jesus could come back at any time. 
He could have come back in the days of Paul and Peter and John. He could have come back any day since then. He could come back today. He could come back any day going forward. In other words, there's nothing that needs to happen before Jesus comes to rapture believers. Nothing. And if that's true, and as if Jesus said he's going to come when we don't expect him, it doesn't make much sense to be looking for signs and then putting a date out there and saying the rapture will be, you know, very soon or whatever. The apostles said the end was near. Maybe they thought it would occur in their day. Certainly they thought it could occur in their day. That's the doctrine of imminence. Any questions about that? Now, there's a lot in the Bible about signs for the second coming after the rapture, right? The tribulation will be pretty clear, but (laughs) the rapture can be a surprise. Now, all that said, I have to admit there are actually two issues that influence my thinking about when the rapture will be. How about that for inconsistency or hypocrisy? But let me explain, okay? When I see certain really awful and spiritually confusing events, then I think, well, Jesus must be standing up, you know? He must be getting ready to come back. But then when I think about unreached people groups, I think maybe we have to wait. So one of the things that really troubles me is cloning, okay? I mean, it's not like the Bible mentions that either. But when you think of the concept of cloning a human being, the philosophical and theological implications are just mind-boggling. And so when I hear something like that, I think, all right, that's it. God's just going to say, boom, time for judgment, you know, time to put an end to this. I'm not saying that's true because I do believe in imminence, but it's just something that makes me think, man, we got to be nearing the end of this, you know, God's tolerance for us. Are there any issues like that that really trouble you spiritually like that, that you think God can't let this go on? Abortion. Abortion. But that's been going on for a while. Yeah. Yep, that, that's a positive sign. And so I know like people at my seminary, um, you know, way back in the 40s and 50s, they were super excited. They thought that was a big sign. But that's the thing. They would teach you imminence and then they'd say, here's a sign that the end is near. It's kind of, they sold a lot of books that way. But <laughs> I don't know. The other thing too is um, this, uh, we don't know all about it, this child trafficking. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's like, It's really awful. But again, I think that's probably always occurred. It's just now with the the technology of media, we can see it better. What surprises me, I live in St. Petersburg now, and it surprises me that basically every month or two, there's a bust and they find several kids in the house. And I had no idea it was that prevalent. You know, I mean, you see prostitutes on the street or whatever, you read stories about them in hotels. But these are kids that have been lured in by social media. They get captured and they become slaves. And it's happening in Tampa Bay, you know, which it's just bizarre to me. The other question I have is in the Bible. Revelation chapter 5 says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then two chapters later, it says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. 
Now my understanding is that these two scenes are happening during the tribulation, which suggests that at that time there are people from every tribe, people, and language secure in heaven. Furthermore, Jesus said in Matthew 24, 14, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. According to the Joshua Project, however, about 43% of identified people groups, totaling 4,600 of them, are mostly unreached, you know, only barely reached, if at all. In China alone, 351 of the 552 people groups do not have even portions of the Bible available in their primary language. In fact, 2,123 groups in the world have no scripture, audio or written, in their primary language. So, on the other hand, there are about a thousand church planting movements now, thankfully, and many of them are targeting unreached people groups. And I have heard amazing praise reports from friends that I have involved in those efforts, things that just blow your mind on the good side, right? And God continues to reach people even in the darkest places. I mean, there's a fast-growing evangelical community in Iran, you know? I mean, places you would think, that's too dark, it's never going to happen. Well, God can go anywhere and shine his light anywhere. And many people groups are becoming more easily within our reach. On the one hand, many of us have friends in the PNG right now getting ready to pick a tribe and an unreached people group. And I'll tell you, as I read their praise reports and I read the stuff coming out of Ethnos 360, their, their mission group, I'm amazed at how organized Ethnos 360 is and the resources they have on the ground there to support every one of these villages where they, they go. It's just incredible. Thankfully, since these are good friends of mine. On the other hand, people groups are actually coming to us. There's another ministry called Launch Global that a friend of mine runs, and they not only send missionaries all over the world to unreached people groups, they help churches in the U.S. to reach those people when they've settled in our communities, especially in college towns, you find that opportunity. As another example, France now has 32 Muslim people groups, and the single largest has over 700,000 people. So if you had a heart for reaching Muslims, you could do so from the comfort of the Côte d'Azur, which I find very attractive. I might brush up on my high school French and uh, if I had the money. <laughs> so any comments about unreached people groups before we move on? I know this is a little different than the prophecy updates you've had, but I had to think all through all this stuff biblically and the stuff was on my heart. So with, so with that 46% not being reached, even with the internet and everything that's out there, we're talking some time before they get covered. But it is one of those things that's escalating, you know, so make, make sure I got my graph. So, you know, it's going like that. Mm -hmm. And that's encouraging because that's another thing you might say, well, if we ever do hit that, that might be the day Jesus says, all right, mm -hmm. you know. Mission done. Yeah. I mean, it is amazing like in South America, you know, they're they're dropping off little portable recorders that have the Bible on them. And so these people walking through the mountains, they might not be able to read, but they can listen to the Bible as they're walking along. And the translation groups, you know, like our friends in the PNG, I mean, after they get to know a village and everything and they get to know the local language and the local culture, they will start translating the Bible into that language and it'll take them years, but as they're doing that, they're also explaining the Bible to the people and, and establishing a church, and eventually those people will go to the next village. I mean, it's just it's one of those things that starts to happen and it picks up momentum, so we'll see. 
Now, when we try to make sense of our times, we're looking at Bible passages that speak of the entire time from the crucifixion till now as the end times. And so we're looking for what it says about this period and what we can understand from it. One of my favorite passages is in Acts 2. Peter is quoting from Joel 2, and it says, And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, just a couple of quick things about this. Verses 17 and 18 are about what happened at Pentecost, and so they do pertain to our time period. Verses 18 and 19 are about the tribulation to come, and verse 21 pertains to both periods. But the remarkable thing here is that Peter takes Joel's statement that anyone who calls on the name of Yahweh will be saved, and he applies that to calling on Jesus. So a very clear statement of Jesus being identified with Yahweh as his divinity as the Son of God. So a very important passage. And I think we definitely should be looking for evidence of the Holy Spirit in ourselves and in other believers, right? Not just in spiritual gifts, but in the fruit of the Spirit, which is the character of Christ. It summarizes the character of Christ. We should see amazing transformation of people in this time period so that they are more like Christ and very distinct from the world. We talk a lot, in the, especially in the Prophecy Update, about what's happening in the world and how bad it is. We should be looking at the other side, too, and saying, how distinct are we from what we're seeing out there? So, here's another one. 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these. Paul loves lists. Now, most of this has been a problem since the days of Adam. And the church where I've been teaching, we've been going through Genesis 1 through 11, and it's amazing how much of this stuff appears right away as soon as people fall into sin. But this last part, this last part, holding to a form of godliness, though they've denied its power, that makes me think of groups, Christian cults like Unitarians, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Church of Christ Scientists, and other groups like Scientology or New Age groups like the Sarasota Center for Spiritual Living. And there used to be a Center for Positive Living. I'm not sure if they're still around. But these groups are filled with people who have good intentions and do good deeds. But they deny the gospel. And I think we're definitely seeing a trend of these groups growing in the U.S. We as evangelical Christians, I mean, we don't avoid them like if we see them on the street, we turn the other way. But we certainly don't worship with them we don't fellowship them with them in a church sense. That's a, a real important thing. Later in the same letter, it says, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, but evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. And I think the evil and the impostors, a lot of that has to do with what we just talked about, but that first half, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We should see this in our own lives mildly, in the U.S., right? A little social awkwardness. 
but it's a very real thing and you'll see it in the news in the rest of the world where people are really suffering and even dying for the cause of Christ. In an earlier letter to Timothy, Paul said, but the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared by those who believe and know the truth. Now, I think we could identify churches and spiritual movements which have some of these characteristics, but what really strikes me here is people falling away from the faith through deception. I don't know about you, but I have known people who have been taught so badly or so falsely in their church that they do fall away at least from practicing their faith. And now they're not open to being taught even good teaching. I mean, it's one of the reasons I went to seminary is because I knew a lot of these people and I thought, well, maybe if I learn what this is really about, I can help. I was a good economics teacher. Maybe I'll be a good Bible teacher. It's not quite the same, but, you know, we do what we can. But I've also known... Sorry? There's a balance sheet. Yeah. <laughs> you got to try to find how, how to make your skills blend together. I've also known people who have gone into the wrong church just to have their ears tickled, right? They want to hear what they want to hear, and so they get false claims about God's promises, especially prosperity in our day, or of God's love overwhelming his righteousness so that certain sins are now permissible. It's, it's very interesting. And speaking of tickling, let's read 2 Timothy 4. It says, I solemnly charge you, Paul writing to Timothy, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. And this is not just about prosperity doctrine, wild Pentecostalism, or theological liberalism. It's also about people who are willing to subvert scripture to science in order to be more appealing to the masses or who want to teach human philosophy or business books or whatever in their church instead of the Bible. And I just want to comment because this comes up later in the news. We are getting to the news. Be patient. But, you know, scripture and creation are both revelation from God. Theology and science are both man-made attempts to interpret that revelation. And so both of those are subjective and have made mistakes in the past. We have to keep that in mind. I think it's good to consider the claims of science. I mean, when they're right, it's truth, and truth is from God. And sometimes science supports what we have in the Bible, especially sciences like archaeology, and now they're bringing in anthropology and other social science type stuff to support archaeology and reconstructing what we read about in the Bible. And they find so much is consistent. But we should never elevate science above the testimony of God's word. A couple more, and then we'll go get to the news. Second Peter chapter 3. Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. I think we definitely see evidence of this in the U.S., um, probably mockers always existed, but now they abound and they grow more brazen every decade, it seems. When you read that, what do you think of? 
Sorry? Facebook. Facebook, yeah. <laughs> There's a, a lot of opinions, and they're getting more extreme in every direction on Facebook. A lot of anti-Christian stuff. Some of you have had your Christian posts pulled, I've noticed. So, anything else? When you think of mockers? Democrats. Some Democrats, yeah. You know, I was thinking about what Jim said. I'm, I'm not as political or as provocative as Charlie, so you won't get as much commentary in that direction from me. But when you were talking about the Supreme Court nominee, you know, in the past, certain Christian nominees to positions have been really grilled about their faith. I remember Biden attacking one fellow and calling him a total fool or something because he believed in the Bible. They have to be careful now, though, because Biden also is Catholic, right? right. And a lot, of, most Catholics are Democrats. So they got to be pretty careful in attacking her religion this time around. It might be an interesting thing to watch for. All right, one more just so we can finish with Jesus. Again, from Matthew 24, verse 4, Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened. For those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For a nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. And they will deliver you to tribulation or trial and will kill you. And you will be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and mislead many. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. The gospel of the kingdom shall be preached to the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And then the end will come. So as I said earlier, clearly I would rather spend my time in the Bible than in the news, in the muck, right? <laughs> but we do have some news to look at. So let's start with some good news. Is that all right? Why not? Why not? There's not always a lot out there. This is from Christianity Today. It says, The Free Church of Jesus Christ Church Association baptized 1,435 people in a single day this month with 20 ministers lined up in the waist-deep reservoir to baptize new believers who had traveled from 200 villages in this predominantly Buddhist area of central Thailand. More than 75,000 villages in the country still have no Christian presence, but groups like this are finding the harvest ready as they travel from village to village bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think this is remarkable a remarkable work of Christ because in Thailand... Buddhism permeates every aspect of daily life. So when people come to Christ, they find themselves ostracized from their family and isolated from almost all of the daily tasks that they used to do. They have to change everything. But on the plus side, when people make that commitment to Christ, they're serious about it. And they form much tighter fellowships and, and biblical community, truly biblical community, much better than we do and here in the U.S. where we don't face that kind of persecution. So let's hope God continues to do that kind of work. And we are seeing it all over the world as church planters strive to reach those previously unreached people groups. Any thoughts about that? About? It's amazing. Thousands? Yeah, over a thousand people. 200 villages. Yeah. I don't know. I've never heard of that group before, but I have friends who have planted churches in Thailand 
in the Buddhist part. And now those churches have been going 20 years or so, and now they are sending people to the south of Thailand, which is predominantly Muslim. So that also is not only a good development as far as reaching more groups, but amazing work of Christ that these people who had been in the Buddhist area probably discriminated against the Muslims and vice versa, and now are willing to leave. You know, they left their Buddhist society to become Christian, and now they're willing to leave the safety of that to go south and reach the Muslim people in their nation. So pretty cool stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's like we said with the Unitarians and, and Mormons. I mean, there's a lot of good people who are Buddhist. You know, you can't deny that. They're nice. I mean, I've had friends who are Buddhist. And, you know, the thing is, though, if they don't hear the gospel, if they don't come to faith in Jesus, then even though they're super nice, they're still going to hell. So we are. Sure. Mm-hmm. No, that's why we send. That's why the Bible calls us to send, to be the hands and feet of Jesus. And Jesus says that we have to go to all corners of the earth to share with the good news with people. Because the thing is, like sometimes we look and we say, well, it's not fair some person born in the Andes Mountains, you know, in his tribe, his culture, whatever, never gets to hear about Jesus and therefore dies and goes to hell. It's a long theology lesson about how all people are fallen and why God holds the whole human race guilty. And therefore, you know, the real question is, why does God save any of us? It's not, why doesn't God save everybody? I mean, that's a different question, but he says clearly in a couple of places that he's not going to save everybody. But our job is not to worry about who he's going to save or who he's not. It's to go and spread the good news. And then as we plant those seeds, God takes care of, harvesting, whether it's through us or someone else, to make sure that people come to Christ. Well, here's some bad news from the Christian Post. A church planter in India's, I don't know how to say this, Maharashtra state was brutally killed by Hindu extremists after suffering years of abuse for his Christian faith amid escalating religious intolerance and violence in that country. He was killed because of his faith, life, and ministry to the Adivasi people in the area, one of his colleagues said. He led more than 20 families to Christ in the last five years, ever since he was actually thrown out of the village by some Hindu radicals. India has roughly 66 million Christians out of a total population of approximately 1.36 billion people. The country has seen a steady rise of persecution of Christians over the past decade, according to Open Doors USA which ranks India the 10th most dangerous place to live as a believer. Open Doors notes that attacks against Christians are often perpetrated by Hindu nationalists, while converts to Christianity from a Hindu background are especially vulnerable to persecution and are constantly under pressure to return to Hinduism. Now, when we think of persecution of Christians around the globe, we usually, I think our first thoughts go to Muslim countries, right, Islamic countries. But the persecution is just as prevalent and just as violent in Hindu areas as it is in any other area. So it's just something to keep in mind. I have friends who are from India. I've had several friends from India, and they are the nicest people. But, (laughs) you know, apparently if you live in India and you convert from Hinduism to Christianity, your life's in danger. 
And this is the real threat faced by believers doing the work of Christ in many parts of the world. When I was in seminary, I met people who had come from places where I would never want to go. And I thought, wow, you made it. And they said, no, no, we're here to get our education so we can go back to reach people in our country. And that was one of the most inspiring things that happened to me at seminary and also one of the most convicting, right? Because while many of us in the U.S. resist engaging in evangelism because we don't want to be socially awkward, these people are willing to sacrifice and suffer even to the point of death to do the mission of Christ. Any thoughts on that? Persecution or missions? It's a tough thing to, to do in the States. And we have no pressure with to your point, you know, they put me in Facebook jail. It's like, oh, boo-hoo, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yep, you've world. been persecuted. <laughs> no, very much so. But uh, it, it's just, it, it's funny, though, when you do look at it, the dichotomy of the two. It's like, yeah, you know, who cares if somebody spray paints your car or keys your car because you have a Christ uh, statement about well, it? It doesn't matter. Charlie's the epitome of the alternate perspective, right? not only looks and acts very distinctive in any culture, I would think, but, you know, if you saw his Facebook post on the airplane, when he does finally put on his mask, it says, Jesus saves, ask me how, right? I mean, he's not afraid to be bold and say, this is who I am. This is what I do. I am a minister of Christ. And again, very inspiring to me. And at the same time, a little convicting. I mean, not that I I could ever grow a beard that beautiful. <laughs> I asked my daughter to brush my hair yesterday. She said, no, Daddy, you have no hair. But, you know, maybe we should wear it a little more boldly on our sleeve. Not to be offensive to people, because we want to win them for Christ. But to let, like, your neighbors should know that you're an evangelical Christian. Your coworkers, you know, the people you interact with at restaurants and the store, if it's regular, you know, you don't have to walk up to every person and say, want to ask me about Jesus? I mean, sometimes that works. It depends on your personality. But, you know, we should be obviously distinct from our culture. People should be coming to us and saying, why are you so different? Why are you giving to me even though I'm mean to you, you know? My daughter likes to go around the neighborhood and pick up everybody's palm branches that fall in the storm. You know, she just wants to do something. Now, some of the neighbors are really nice and some of them aren't. But we don't discriminate, right? We go pick up the branches wherever they are and maybe someday they'll say, why do you do that? I'll say, oh, because... Jesus loves all of us, and we represent him, you know. One of the, one of the things about that, though, yeah. is if you purposely spend time with people who do it already, that's where you'll finally figure out where your groove is to yeah. make it work right. I mean, Charlie was great. Tom, Allie, good Lord. It's like, you know, he's very calm, very yeah. spoken. Everybody has a different style. Right. Yeah. At least you see it how it works, and you're going to scrape your yeah, it's okay, right? Facebook jail is not so bad. Did you have something you wanted to say? Oh, living in, um, overseas, um, found that the people who are being persecuted, called into the police station and the real towers and all their phone contacts brought in and ruined. They are praying for the church in the West. They are come alive for us because they believe, they don't ask us to pray that there will be no persecution, but that they will remain true and fervent in their love for Christ. It does seem like the the evidence is that where persecution grows in the world, Christianity thrives more. It spreads faster. It's one of those weird things that you wouldn't expect, but and maybe it is just that. People know, hey, if I'm going to declare for Christ, I have to be all in. 
you know, I can't be a little wishy-washy, sneak in on Sunday and then not let anyone know during a week. It's it's different. You don't have to look for a things to tell them about the Lord. You can just look up to see the, see the moon and you automatically. Yeah. I, I don't care. A bird, three limbs, awesome. God put all these things here so we can use if a fellow in that group is interested in that. Yeah. And it's always amazed me. We used to send youth groups to Haiti in a church that I was a, a youth group leader in. And, you know, you go to an orphanage in Haiti and they're sleeping on a mattress this thick on a board. Their kitchen has no roof. They don't know if they're going to have food day to day. They live in one of the poorest countries in the hemisphere. And yet they wake up with praise on their lips and joy in their heart. And the teenagers come back thinking, why don't I feel that way? You know, I mean, <laughs> because, never mind. I mean, not never mind. But in addition to inspiring their hearts towards missions and reaching people, they realize there's something wrong with my perspective in this country about God and life if they are having joy and I'm not, you know. And it, it's... It's something that we probably have to remind ourselves because you come back from the missions trip or any kind of, you know, maybe we used to do youth camps as well. And then the adults come back just as pumped up, you know, and then a couple of weeks go by and you're like, yeah, it's okay. I'll just watch TV and, you know, and it just, you settle right back into the routine that you had before you went. But then you go again next year and you come back all pumped up and, you know, like I spent one week in Bolivia. And I mean, I got up at, five in the morning to do my Bible study before our day began. And I went to bed at 10 o'clock at night and everything in between there, every minute was spent doing God's work. And it was great. I didn't miss television. I didn't miss the internet. I didn't miss anything about my life. Well, physically I was, <laughs> I was old. The, the, the teens and the college kids, they stayed up playing music all night. But <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I mean, you're pumped. You're, you're doing God's God. work. You're seeing people. You know, we went to villages where, you know, again, like they don't have toys. They don't have anything. You know, these are just little house, little one room, like this, not even this big houses built into the hillside of rocky, scrabbly ground, you know, and we would go and play soccer with them and sing some songs and share some, some truth and give them some, some treats. And I mean, the whole village comes out. It's an event. You know, and I'm not saying like every one of them comes to Christ that day, but they're interested, especially the little kids. And you just realize, man, I could, what if we could do this here? I mean, we came back to Pennsylvania where I was pastoring and I said, let's do that here. Let's do these, these playground, you know, we'll, we'll open it up to the whole town. We'll sing, we'll dance. We'll, oh man, we got so tied up in red tape and insurance and, you know. I mean, eventually we just decided it wasn't worth it. We'd just do something. I mean, the problem was our church was up on a hill, kind of like half a mile out of the village. So, I mean, we had done things there and people had come, but how much better it would have been to be right there where they could just come out of their houses and be there with us, you know? Anyway, so. Well, from the good to the bad to the ugly, here's from the Jerusalem Post. A former traffic police officer who has declared himself Jesus reincarnated has been arrested by Russian authorities in a special operation deep in Siberia. 
Helicopters and armed officers were used to infiltrate the communities run by Sergei Torop, age 59, who is more commonly known by his cult name Vasarian. Torop has been running his cult, the Church of the Last Testament, deep in the wilderness of Siberia since 1991. He claims to have experienced an awakening in which he adopted the persona of Jesus. He said, I am not God, and it is a mistake to think of Jesus as God. Uh-oh. But I am living, I am the living word of God the Father. Everything God wants to say, he says through me. He told this to a UK newspaper called The Guardian in 2002. His community's beliefs draw on Eastern Orthodox Christianity and environmentalism, among other ideologies. Veganism is enforced. Monetary exchange is banned within the commune. Cult members dress austerely and count their calendar from 1961, the year of Tarop's birth. Christmas has been replaced by a feast day in January, his birthday. Now, these false messiahs pop up every now and then, and like this fellow, they often form cults. But I think we can expect in the future to see some that will be more widely accepted. For now, to really have success, you have to be more subtle. Rather than declaring that you are Christ, you say you are speaking for Christ, right? You have you claim to be his voice, and then you change doctrines or you shift the emphasis of biblical teaching. And when you look at the early history of groups like the Mormons, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Seventh-day Adventists, and many others, it makes you wonder, like, how can people buy in to what they're selling? But people buy in all the time. So any thoughts on that? It's strange. Some of it is they're aggressive, you know. While we've been just talking about how we're not willing to engage in evangelism and we sit back, I mean, these groups go door to door. And I don't know anybody in this generation that wants to do that, but they are successful. They meet the people who are vulnerable. They're home. They're lonely. They'll listen to anything. They hand them literature. It makes sense to them. They don't know any better, you know. Well, the worst thing about it is that they are doing their door to door because Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's hard anyway. I mean, I have argued with the Jehovah's Witnesses many times, and I've won every argument, but I've never won a battle. You know, I mean, it's. <laughs> we used to have the same lady who would come around our neighborhood when I lived in Sarasota. Every couple of months, she would have a new little protege, and she would come, and and it was, you know, we got into, I was in seminary then, so we'd get into the Greek, and we'd get into the different translations of their Bible versus my Bible, and I'd tell them, I'll take your literature if you'll take mine. I wrote this just for you, and they're like, oh no, that's like, you know. So it was always very interesting, but... It's it's definitely a sign, I think, that we're seeing what we said, what Scripture said we would see during our time period. Anything else from the Jerusalem Post? For anyone intimidated to start reading Israeli historian Yuval Noah Harari's comprehensive book *Sapiens: A Brief History of Humankind*, help is on the way. A graphic novel version will be available next month, Sapiens, a graphic history, to be narrated by a caricature of Harari himself. It reimagines human evolution as a reality te television show. 
It's the first of four planned volumes covering the material in the best-selling book, which has sold 16 million copies in 60 languages worldwide. The nonfiction book charts the course of the development of humans from the prehistoric era to modernity. And I noticed in a promotional blurb about the book that it claims 100,000 years ago, at least six different species of humans inhabited the earth. Now, it's not surprising to find such a book by a secular scholar, right? But I included this because it reminded me of something that I just realized as I've been doing my own studies. I told you I've been teaching in the beginning of Genesis, and so I've been reading a lot of books that talk about creation. And I am finding that many conservative evangelical scholars are now denying young earth creation. And they've got alternate theories for how to interpret Genesis 1 and 2 rather than a six-day literal creation. Now, I never thought about this doctrine as being one of the most important. I probably haven't thought about it at all until now. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't define orthodoxy like the Trinity does or like inspiration of scripture, right? But it does seem to be an area of spiritual attack right now on the church. And there is, you know, well, let me tell you what bothers me. There's some good biblical analysis in the alternative theories to how to read Genesis 1 and 2. There's it's stuff that's interesting. But I can't hold to a doctrine that ignores the biblical basis for the Sabbath, that ignores the fact that Jesus considered at least day six to be historical, and that ignores the problem of having death before sin. I mean, that is a huge theological implication of these alternative theories. And my fear is that if we erode long-held and biblically sound doctrinal positions like this one, then we are once again on the slippery slope that led to theological liberalism in the first place. We're trying to make Christianity more acceptable to the broader community, but we're sacrificing something important to do so. I think it's all right to engage with science. It's okay to try to appeal to a broader audience, but how we do so is very important. Any thoughts on that? When are they going to find the well, yeah, that's right. You know, the thing with archaeology is it's kind of like economics. In economics, you can make the data show anything you want. I learned that when I was in graduate school for economics. And archaeology is kind of like that. You get one article that says, yeah, we found evidence that man, six versions of man lived 100,000 years ago. And you get another article that says, oh, no, you know, that doesn't make sense. The problem is, like, we know pretty well how to argue scientifically against macroevolution. A lot of people still hold to it, but I mean, the, the arguments from science against it are just as strong. A lot of scientists are moving away from evolution towards either intelligent design or Christian creation or something like that. But the, the arguments from science for an old earth are harder to argue against. They just seem, I mean, unless you just believe that either God made the world to look the way it does so that everybody could get tenure no matter what their position, you know, <laughs> or that the flood created all the things we're seeing. And some people hold those views, but not very many in the scientific community. And so there's this, I, I understand, I've had professors even in Dallas Seminary, which is very conservative, who said, you know, I have a hard time arguing against the old earth thing. Evolution, yes, no good, macroevolution. But old earth is harder. But again, like if you're looking at it just from a Bible scholar perspective, again, you're getting 
death before sin, at least in the animal world, right? Even if you think mankind was only made more recently, if anything dies before the fall, before the curse on the earth, then you've changed a major theological doctrine. Again, Jesus talked about day six of creation, Adam and Eve and their marriage as being historically, literally true. So, you know, he didn't talk about the first few days maybe, but if day six is real, you know, and everything else he mentioned about Genesis was, his, was he considered it historical, then I don't see how you get away from that. And again, for the Sabbath too, in Genesis and in Exodus, the six day creation is given as the basis for the Sabbath. If those are millions of years or whatever, you know, there are some theories that make sense, but then you come back and say, well, then why would, why would, I mean, God could have established the Sabbath on any day and he could have made it any number of days in between Sabbaths. He could have just said every seven days have a Sabbath. None of us would have thought that was weird. But instead he said, because I did this, you do this, right? I don't know. It just scares me when I see it. I, I mean, you know, there's a lot of liberal theologians out there saying whatever they want to say. And the reason I never finished my PhD is because they want you to learn conversational French and German to go argue with the liberal theologians from Europe. And I was like, first of all, my brain can't do that. You know, it'll push Hebrew and Greek, the little I remember, right out of my head. And second of all, who wants to read that stuff? I mean, I don't want to spend my days arguing with these people. I want to talk to people who believe in the Bible as God's revelation. I'll argue with them. They speak English or, you know, they get translated into English. But interesting about it, they get rid of Genesis and change it. Then the whole concept yeah, falls it all falls yeah. apart. That's right. You got to start with God's word, not man. Mm -hmm. I agree. And that's what worries me is that here are conservatives who are saying, well, you know, we're conservative. We are evangelical. We subscribe to all the things that define orthodoxy, but we can't buy into the beginning of Genesis. And from the Jerusalem Post. The Palestinian Authority has quit its current chairmanship of Arab League meetings, the PA foreign minister said on Tuesday, condemning as dishonorable any Arab agreement to establish formal relations with Israel. Palestinians see the accords that the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain signed with Israel in Washington a week ago as a betrayal of their cause and a blow to their quest for an independent state in Israeli-occupied territory. Earlier this month, the Palestinians failed to persuade the Arab League to condemn member nations breaking ranks and normalizing ties with Israel. My whole life, presidents have been trying to broker peace between Israel and the Islamic Middle East. Jimmy Carter had some success, but he actually had to promise huge annual payments to Egypt in order to make that happen. Now we have the UAE and Bahrain. They're small nations to be sure, but they're significant in the social context over there. And I've read in the Wall Street Journal that the crown prince of Saudi Arabia is intrigued by this idea of trade ties and peace, although his father remains adamantly against it. I'm not sure how this relates to our the prophecy stuff we were looking at earlier, but since it involves Israel, I thought I'd throw it in there. Any thoughts on, on the peace process? I mean, pretty amazing, pretty startling to all of a sudden have two countries say, okay, we'll do it. Sorry? It's changing. Yeah. Yeah. It's very interesting. Sides are being drawn. Teams are making their shirt. Yeah, I think. I mean, I think part of it too is countries like Iran have made themselves so offensive, even to their Islamic neighbors, that you know what used to be a unified bloc is now starting to say, "Well, 
I mean, we don't have anything in common with them. We don't want to have anything in common with them, you know. And if you look at, I mean, I think it was Netanyahu who said a few years ago, I mean, the best life that a Muslim can have in the Middle East is living in Israel. You know, I mean, they have citizenship, they have all these rights, they have prosperity, you know, they have a lot more freedom than they'll have in most of the Islamic countries. So it's interesting, very interesting development. And I think, I mean, again, I'm not, I don't want to be political, but from Carter to Trump, that's a lot of years without any progress. So an amazing accomplishment for this administration, whether it was all their effort or just, you know, capping the effort that had gone before. Pretty impressive, especially when you consider the president has been much more pro-Israel than the previous administration. So... You know, if anything, you would have thought that would push the Arab nations away. Right. But, yeah. A couple more from the Wall Street Journal. Islamic State remains flush with cash despite setbacks in the past year, holding financial reserves and a range of revenue streams that U.S. and Western security officials warn could pay for a dangerous resurgence. The extremist organization and its affiliates have assets ranging into the hundreds of millions of dollars across the Middle East and Central Asia, according to the officials and government records reviewed by the Wall Street Journal. Islamic State's grip across a large swath of Syria and Iraq was broken last year when a military coalition dismantled its caliphate, cutting off much of its income from oil sales, tax collection and extortion, and the local banks it had seized. But the group still extorts local populations in areas it controls or has supporters receives income from businesses it seized during its rule, and collects payments from human trafficking, U.S. and Western officials say. Its affiliates command a growing share of illicit tobacco markets in Pakistan and Afghanistan, and donors in several Middle Eastern countries work on raising funds. So even if legitimate nations make peace with Israel, it's hard to see that the battle with radical Islam is ever going to end. Especially, I mean, their literature says they see this as a war that goes back a thousand years to the Crusades. When, if you study it that far back, you see that it really begins 400 years earlier with the creation of Islam because they were very aggressive right out the gate in conquering their neighbors and forcing conversion. So crazy coronaviruses and crazy terrorists, they've always existed in the centuries since the fall of Adam and Eve. But I think our travel capabilities and travel patterns make both a lot more threatening today. Any thoughts on that? Oh, there's a clock right there. There's a clock. <laughs> I almost never look at a clock. Like when I'm preaching, you know, I used to, when I was an itinerant preacher, they'd put a little timer up on the pulpit, you know, and I'd just drop it in the potted plant because <laughs> I'm going to say what God tells me to say. And actually I'm very, I know how much each page takes. So I'm pretty much within two or, min, two or three minutes of my target. But Every once in a while, it's nice to know what time it is, especially if you're supposed to take a break. All right, two more. From the Wall Street Journal, Beijing flew military aircraft close to Taiwan on a day that a senior American diplomat met with Taiwan's president as part of a series of recent U.S. moves to improve ties with the self-ruled island. The Trump administration has pushed to further relationships with Taiwan as tensions grow with Beijing over technology, trade, and global influence. The status of the island, which Beijing considers a part of Chinese territory, is one of the most sensitive issues between the U.S. and China. Beijing sees high-level U.S. interactions with Taiwanese officials as provocations. I have a lot of Chinese friends. I can't say I'm a friend of the nation of China. 
we've seen what their ambitions are with the subjugation of Hong Kong and Tibet. Um, they are building military bases on islands closer to the Philippines than to China. And it's interesting, Taiwan has never been under communist Chinese rule. And yet, they say it's theirs. And that's a lot like when Hitler claimed that any land was his where a Germanic people had settled, you know, ever. We're seeing a lot of posturing by China, by Russia, and a lot of smaller nations. I think we can start to see military expansionism increase, whereas in the last few decades, it's been kind of dormant. Here's a related one from Routers. China's Air Force released a video showing nuclear-capable H-6 bombers carrying out a simulated attack on what appears to be Anderson Air Force Base on the U.S. Pacific island of Guam. The video released on Saturday on People's Liberation Army Air Force Weibo account came as China carried out a second day of drills near the Chinese-claimed Taiwan island to express Beijing's anger at the visit of a U.S. senior State Department official. Guam is home to a major U.S. military facility, including the airbase, which would be key to responding to any conflict in the Asia-Pacific region. The Chinese Air Force's two-minute and 15-second video, set to solemn dramatic music like a trailer for a Hollywood movie, shows H-6 bombers taking off from a desert base. The video is called The God of War, H-6K, Goes to the Attack. Halfway through, a pilot presses a button and looses off a missile at an unnamed seaside runway. The missile homes in on the runway, a satellite image of which is shown that looks exactly like the layout of Anderson, though it is not named. The music suddenly stops as images on the ground shaking of the ground shaking appear, followed by aerial views of an explosion. I'll tell you, you know, there's a growing Christian movement in China, both in the officially recognized church and the underground house church. I guess we just got to hope that they keep going. I mean, they are persecuted a little bit. They're limited. They're watched, but they don't face persecution like they do in India and Indonesia. But meanwhile, we expect wars and natural disasters because of what if Jesus said would prophetically happen, or he said prophetically would happen. But obviously the idea of a nuclear conflict with China does not appeal to any of us. No. no. And I just want to read you one more and then we'll take our break. This is from the Wall Street Journal. In a troubled part of West Africa, Europe is fielding a military force intended to show it can handle its own security and reduce reliance on the U.S. The coalition of European countries led by France is assembling based on a calculation that helping each other overseas will cement security and defense back home in Europe. But the effort in the semi-arid belt running along the southern edge of the Sahara faces an uphill battle. European forces are scattered across various missions and have differing appetites for lethal combat. Military and civilian deaths are mounting, while the number of violent attacks by Islamist extremist groups has risen sharply. Local allies have been accused of human rights abuses, and one of them, the president of Mali, was ousted in a coup in August. France and Estonia this summer deployed elite troops as part of a new task force that will train local militaries and take part in counterterrorism operations with them. Commandos from countries including the Czech Republic, Sweden, Belgium, and Italy will join over the next year. This task force is a signature initiative of an effort by French President Macron, who questions U.S. commitment to Europe to bolster Europe's military capabilities. As the Trump administration has cut troop numbers in Africa and announced plans for restrictions in Europe, Mr. Macron has led calls for what he has dubbed a European army. Now, it's hard to get too excited or too worried about a European army that at this point is inept, but 
it would be a really interesting development if Europe came out with a, a unified military, right? I mean, that was one of the ambitions of Hitler, Napoleon. What an interesting development that would be, especially thinking in terms of the big war to come that we know is coming. Any thoughts before we end? So, Pat. Yeah. Yeah, and you're you're seeing that even with Russia now, you know, seizing part of the Ukraine, heavily influencing, uh, what is it, Biala Russia, is that how you say it? So, yeah, I mean, just interesting that, I mean, they've been economically semi-unified and now they're more unified and now they've got this political body as well that still allow, it's kind of a federalist type thing, but still more loose than our country is. States have bigger rights there. But now, like, military, that would be interesting. But they can't agree on anything. No, I know. So, <laughs> it happen, you know it'll be the hand of God. And, and they are the, the kings of red tape. Like, you know, they wanted the free trade agreement between them, but you can't call champagne champagne unless it's made in Champagne, France. And they have, like, hundreds of rules for limiting the name of each cheese and stuff like that. So, well, Pastor Charlie plans to be here for the Prophecy Update next week.